So our subject tonight, I've given the title Confronting Pharaoh. And we're going to be looking at the plagues, which maybe some of you from your childhood learnt the stories. And if you were a boy, it was uh, one of those sections in your, your Bible that uh, was always great, was full of action. So I'm going to read some selected verses and I'll explain my sort of rationale and just picking here and there as we go on in the evening. But to begin, if you would turn to Exodus chapter 4, we're going to read from verse 21 to 23. This is before, this is just as, as Moses is returning to Egypt, just as uh, the whole drama that we're going to be considering tonight begins. So Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. Turn over to Exodus chapter 8. Verse 10. We're just jumping in the middle of it. Uh, Tomorrow, Pharaoh said, Moses replied, It will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Verse 22 of the same chapter, Exodus 8. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. And finally, chapter 9, verse 13 Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Amen. Tonight we're going to be thinking about the solemn subject of God's judgment. Or maybe I should say, we're going to be thinking about the glorious subject of God's judgment. God's wrath, that is his holy hatred of sin, is never something that we should apologize for. It's every bit as much a glorious demonstration 
of God's character, as is his love. In fact, it is because God is a God of love that he is eternally opposed to sin and deals with it as it deserves. But with God's judgment, there is always mercy. There's always space given and the opportunity for sinners to repent. And we're going to see this in technicolor this evening as we consider the plagues that came progressively upon Egypt. And it's worth noting as we consider the Exodus, that great deliverance of God's people, that it actually brought God's judgment upon two nations, two sets of people. Obviously, it fell upon Egypt in the form of the plagues. But those plagues were in themselves appeals to Pharaoh, Egypt's absolute ruler, to end his stubborn rebellion, to submit to God, and to avoid destruction. And only after repeated blows did the final devastating judgment come upon Egypt. But then, of course, it was Israel's exodus from Egypt that set the nation on its way to Canaan. And there, too, God's judgment would fall upon the people of that land. But once again, it did so only after a prolonged period of opportunity in which the inhabitants of that land could have repented. 400 years to be precise. Genesis 15 verse 16. Only when the sin of the Amorites, Amorites being the collective term for the residents of Canaan, only when the sin of the Amorites reached full measure would the judgment of God finally come. So, brothers and sisters, even God's judgment reveals his character, his heart, the God that he is. And we must never apologize for that. So we're going to be thinking about the plagues tonight. But before we turn our attention to thinking about the purposes that lay behind the plagues, we need to have an understanding of what actually happened. So we have, uh, you'll be pleased to know, we have a handout, which you won't be getting later because I left them sitting on my study table, but you will be getting them on Sunday. You don't need to try to take this down. I'm just going to try and give you a sort of handle on how to approach those central chapters on the plagues. There's really three stages to it. There is, first of all, the sign that the Lord told Moses to perform in front of Pharaoh. This was the first encounter with the staff becoming a serpent, and we'll take that up later. But that was the first engagement. 
then, because of Pharaoh's defiance, we enter into the plagues. Now, if you look at the chart there, you'll notice there are three sets of three. And that is exactly how the plagues are set out in the book of Exodus. You get the same sort of pattern. Here's how the, the plagues unfold. And you'll notice that in the morning. Then with the second set of three, you get the same thing. Go to Pharaoh. Uh, and also in the final three, then there are patterns there. There are three sets of three plagues as God ratchets up his judgment on the land. So there's actually nine plagues, strictly speaking. The tenth plague is the judgment. The, the, the nine plagues are preparatory. They're all leading up to the tenth devastating blow with the death of the firstborn. And another little thing just maybe to be aware of, the translation plague is not probably the best way of translating that. And, you know, in what sense are some of them plagues? It's really the term for blows or strikes. They are repeated divine disciplining strokes upon Pharaoh and his realm. They're actually described in chapter 7, verse 3, as signs and wonders. They were not just designed to punish. They were to instruct. They were disciplining, offering, as we'll see, offering Pharaoh and Egypt and out. But that's just a little bit um, uh, about the, the plagues and, and God's patience with Egypt. Um, and this is what we're going to see tonight very clearly. I'll leave that up. Um, but we're going to see this. Pharaoh just repeatedly rejecting this mounting evidence that God was speaking to him through the increasingly devastating plagues. But Pharaoh refused. He resisted. He reneged on his word a couple of times when he said he would let Israel go. He did everything he could to continue to hold on to Israel. He hardened his heart. And that means he stiffened his resolve. The more God delivered the blow, the more intransigent he actually became. And if you pay careful attention to the text, you will not be left sympathizing with Pharaoh, but you will be left marveling at the patience of God with him. As we read in the verse tonight, by this stage, I could have wiped you and your people off the face of the earth. So we're going to come to think a bit about the purpose of the plagues. I don't know if you've ever thought much about that. But I, I'm going to uh, put four reasons to you uh, which explain why the plagues fell upon Egypt. And they're all lifted straight from Scripture. They're not speculation. The first one is this. The contest of the firstborn. Now, I wonder, did you catch in the first of our readings tonight in chapter 4, verse 21, 
to 23, what was said there. Because this is God speaking to Pharaoh through Moses before anything happens. He's told this message. When God's judgment finally fell upon Egypt on Passover night, we all know that it claimed every firstborn male, human or animal, right throughout the land of Egypt, except in those homes that were marked by the blood of the Lamb. But do you see the appropriateness, the fittingness of this dreadful judgment? It was Pharaoh's treatment of God's firstborn. That's in black and white in the text, chapter 4, verse 21 to 23. It was Pharaoh's treatment of God's firstborn and his steadfast refusal to allow his firstborn, the children of Israel, to go and worship the Lord that was responsible for the judgment of Pharaoh's firstborn. Personally, as a father, he lost his firstborn son. And also, in his official capacity as the king, an absolute ruler of Egypt. Whatever else we understand the plagues to be about, we must understand this. God is jealous for his people. His love is a jealous, protecting love. It matters to him what happens to his people, and he responds to those who harm them in a way that is appropriate. The punishment is fitted to the crime. The plagues were God's repeated appeals to Pharaoh to stop abusing his firstborn, God's firstborn. And when the nine warning strikes were complete and Pharaoh remained defiant in his decision to enslave Israel, both he and his people paid the terrible price of that defiance and abuse. And I can't help but think of the marker that this puts down for all persecutors of God's people today and throughout the previous 20 centuries of church history. Our God is a jealous God. And he will repay with perfect justice all those who have harmed his people. That's a very important truth for the persecuted church today. So the first reason, the contest of the firstborn, that's, that puts the whole plagues in context. That's what's going on. Second purpose, the defeat of Egypt's gods. And this is a fascinating dimension to the story of the plagues, which you may not be aware of. But if you look at Exodus 12, verse 12 for a moment, and what it says about Passover night, let's hear this. The Lord is speaking. 
On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. Now listen to this. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. It's important that we see beyond the conflict between Moses and Pharaoh or between Moses and the Egyptian magicians that we'll come to, or even between Israel and Egypt. This is a reckoning for the false gods of Egypt and for the claims that was made for them in that culture. Now, I think it's fair to say that this can be overplayed. A few commentators are perhaps a bit too eager to connect each plague to a specific Egyptian god. And the evidence offered in support of it can seem a bit strained at times, to say the least. There are, however, certain undeniable associations between the plagues and the gods of Egypt. And we're probably best to stick to the ones that are clear-cut and that history demonstrates. Take the initial sign of Moses' staff being turned into a snake, which then, of course, Moses demonstrates complete control over it because he takes it by the tail, you remember? Now, if you know anything about ancient Egypt you'll be familiar with how the pharaohs presented themselves with the hooded cobra on their crowns. The ureus, as it's called. That was the symbol of Egyptian royalty. And you must understand that Pharaoh was held to be the mediator the more than human mediator between the gods and the world of men in Egypt. So from the very start, God was setting out his stall with that sign performed that he was going to display his absolute dominance over the false gods of Egypt. So that was at the very start, the sign, even before the plagues began. Go to the end of the plague's sequence, the ninth plague, which was what? Thick darkness, which brought Egypt to a complete standstill. What did that say about the power of Amun-Ra, the great sun god of Egypt? who was held to be the father of Pharaoh. And then when we come to the judgment, the death of the firstborn, including Pharaoh's son, who was, of course, heir to the throne of Egypt. Egypt's gods are being shown as utterly powerless before Yahweh. We read that with the early plagues, Pharaoh's magicians, don't think of your children's party entertainer there, 
You're talking sorcerer priests, occult practitioners. They were brought in early doors to bolster Pharaoh's position in this spiritual contest between Moses and Yahweh and the gods of Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And there's great irony in how the magicians, through their contribution, actually made things worse. They replicate the sign. Don't ask me how. But if we take the Bible at face value, they replicate the sign of the staff turning into a snake. And then in the case of the first two plagues, Nile water turning to blood and then being overrun with frogs, the magicians repeat the sign. Am I the only one thinking, with friends like that, who needs enemies? Initially, they could replicate, but not reverse or remedy the situation. Their contribution merely compounded the problem. You come to the third plague, the gnats, or maybe more likely lice. They were no longer able to keep up. And they confessed, listen to this, Pharaoh's own sorcerers could confess to Pharaoh, chapter 8, verse 19, this is the finger of God. By the time of the sixth plague, the boils, we read that the magicians could not even stand before Moses and Aaron. It's undeniable that the Nile the frogs which were held in Egypt to be a symbol of fertility, cattle, particularly bulls, they all had very strong associations with the gods in Egyptian religion and culture. One of the reasons for the plagues was that they were God's protest against Egypt's perversion of reality and the exposing of its false gods. And in connection with that, we come to our third purpose, which is the knowledge of God. The promotion of the knowledge of God. And I'm sure if you were paying attention in those selected readings that I did at the start, the repetition of this idea that whether it was to Pharaoh or the Egyptians or even Israel itself, they were going to be brought to see more and more, to understand more and more of who the Lord is through the plagues. Chapter 7, verse 17. This is God's instruction to Moses as to what he should say to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. You see, Egypt had deified the Nile. The Nile was the sustainer, the giver of life in Egypt. Pharaoh was the divine protector of the Nile. 
But God reveals who he is by showing his complete control over the Nile. He could turn it to blood. And Pharaoh could do nothing to stop him. Chapter 8, verse 10. This is important. For here we have Moses talking to Pharaoh in light of Pharaoh's request that Moses pray for him, having agreed to let Israel go. And Moses, in response, invites Pharaoh, pick the time when I will pray so that the plague of frogs will stop. You know, so that you're going to know this is God. Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you might know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The plagues, I touched on this earlier, the plagues don't only reveal the power of God, but also his character. He is willing to remove his judgment as soon as rebellion comes to an end. Pharaoh sees this in the responsiveness of God to the prayer of Moses on his behalf. And then more evidence. Chapter 8, verse 22 and 23. Moses is sent to Pharaoh to inform him of the coming plague of the flies. And then God says this. But I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, which is where Israel lived within Egypt, where my people lived. No swarm of flies will be there. So that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. God explains that there will be a demarcation between the Egyptians and the Israelites to prove that the Lord is in control of all Egypt. If Pharaoh foolishly thought that Yahweh was some local limited deity, then he would be brought to see that he is none other than the Lord of all the earth, Egypt included. And when Pharaoh again feigned repentance and asked Moses to pray for him that the plague of hail would stop, Moses replied, when I've gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail so that you may know the earth is the Lord's. Chapter 9, verse 29. And what's very interesting is the Lord even tells Moses that the memory of the plagues will continue to reveal the truth of who God is in the future. Chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them. And that you may know, that you may know that I am the Lord. If future generations were to understand who God is, 
and what he is like, then the plagues of Egypt would provide an essential module in that curriculum. The fourth purpose is this, the cost of rebellion. And this final point brings us into territory that some believers feel uncomfortable with. What we read of God hardening Pharaoh's heart seems so harsh and unfair. How do we respond to that? Well, what we need to do is to pay close attention to the text and allow the text to speak for itself. But here's the problematic statement for some. Comes in chapter 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. And that, of course, is a throwback to chapter 4, verse 21, that we read at the start, where all before all this began, God said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. There you have it. Pharaoh had no chance. Pharaoh had no choice. God said he would harden his heart. And that's exactly what he did. Yeah, but let's see what actually happens. God tells Moses how that's going to unfold. But let's track with Pharaoh and God's dealings with him. And this is a challenge for you, but a very rewarding challenge. Read the plagues. It is only after the sixth plague, after the sixth plague, that we read for the first time that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So let's just backtrack. That means that by that stage, Pharaoh had already witnessed the initial sign of Moses' staff being turned into a serpent. He had endured the Nile turning to blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the death of the livestock, and the boils. And after every single one of those demonstrations of God's power, Pharaoh's response was to refuse to yield and to harden his own heart. Just think of the enormous amount of evidence that God provided Pharaoh with, even as Pharaoh continued to resist him. And that evidence came in four main ways. They are these. Prophetic words. Miraculous signs, answered prayers, and a convicted conscience. And I'll just say something about each of those. Prophetic words. God spoke to Pharaoh through Moses. He told him what he required from him. 
He told him what he would do if he resisted. He told him what form the judgment would take and at what time it would come. God spoke again and again and again to Pharaoh. But he refused to the point where God said, enough is enough and the opportunity for repentance has passed. Miraculous signs. We've seen already how the plagues humiliated Egypt's gods. As I said earlier, by the end of the third plague, Pharaoh's own sorcerer priests were telling him this is the finger of God. Even after that, God gives Pharaoh even more evidence by making a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians as those middle plagues come. Any fair-minded person is left asking, what more could God have done to make Pharaoh see sense? And actually, he did more. Answered prayer. Listen to these words which come after Moses prayed in response to Pharaoh's request that the plague of frogs might stop. Having been allowed, Pharaoh having been allowed to pick the very time that the prayer would be answered as conclusive proof that this was the Lord's doing. Listen to this in chapter 8, 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. He requested prayer again after the fourth plague of flies and once again reneged on his word. Interestingly, after the eighth plague of locusts, he asked for prayer that the plague might stop. And even though it does, we read at this stage, and the Lord hardened his heart. Convicted conscience. Throughout it all, God was appealing to Pharaoh through the workings of his conscience. But he resisted time after time. It's only after the seventh plague that Pharaoh concedes for the first time, chapter 9, verse 27, I have sinned. He says the same after the eighth plague, chapter 10, verse 16. But his repentance is never real. These are empty words. And the words of a soul that has already sailed past the point of no return. From plague six, Pharaoh's destiny is fixed. God has confirmed him in his own choice. His opportunity is past. In light of all the above, all the ways that God appealed to Pharaoh... Let's listen to some of the most solemn words in all of Scripture. They're found in chapter 9, verse 16. And the Apostle Paul repeats them in Romans 9, verse 17. 
They were spoken by God through Moses to Pharaoh. Listen to this. But I have raised you up for this very purpose. Or I have made you stand for this very purpose. That I might show you my power. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Later at the Red Sea, God tells Moses what he will accomplish through his judgment of the pursuing Egyptians. If you want to know if Pharaoh's repentance was real, why are his forces coming to retake Israel? Chapter 14, verse 17 and 18. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, so that they will go in and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Pharaoh, that vessel of wrath, as Paul calls him, is an object lesson of what will happen to all who rebel against God, who resist his appeals, and who refuse to bow. God is not mocked. His glory will be seen in his wrath, even as it is seen in his mercy. Pharaoh is in our Bible for a reason. He's there for our education. And over his story, we can write two words. Be warned. We cannot refuse God and expect to get away with it. We've been thinking about solemn things tonight. But this is in our Bible for our instruction and for our eternal good. Our God is a God of salvation and he is a God of judgment. He delights to show mercy, but he will not be forever defied. And if in the end his mercy is refused, he will glorify himself in his wrath. And this is the God of whom we must speak to our Egypt, even as Moses did to his. And with that challenge in mind, I'm going to leave you with an encouraging little verse that you could easily skip over in all this. It's chapter 9, verse 20. And it's a lovely bright light in the midst of unfolding darkness. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring in their slaves and their livestock. Let that sink in. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the Lord the word of the Lord. There were those who got it as this horrible judgment unfolded. May God lead us to those in our Egypt who will come to fear the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.